I hope I'm able to make it through today. I sat in a different spot this morning. Uh, look, I grew up Baptist. You're not supposed to sit in a different spot. You know, it's just a really stressful morning for me. So uh, we should probably go ahead and pray. No. You sit wherever you want. We're, uh, we're, we're breaking tradition. We're sticking to scripture around here. Where we, uh, where we land this morning today, we see that Jesus calls a sinner to follow him. And that is a big problem because then this sinner that follows Jesus brings his friends along, which comes with another problem, and that is that the self-righteous religious people get mad that this Jesus, who has this messianic following, who is healing people, who is teaching about repentance and the kingdom, now he has all of these sinners following him. And that is so completely just a stark contrast, a polar opposite to what the, the way that they live their life to the way that their lives look and the things that they believe. And so, maybe that sounds a lot like your church background. Usually, if you have a church that is nice and established and, and people are sitting in your seat and you just don't know what to do, usually sinners get into the mix and it makes religious people really nervous. I know for myself growing up in a couple of churches that has certainly been the case. People start getting saved. They come off the streets. They're dirty. They're messy. They don't know how to sing the songs. They, they don't clap on two and four. They clap on one and three. And it just, it really changes everything. And, and your seat might get taken. But what we see is Jesus. Jesus is in it for the messy, for the broken, for the dirty people. He's in it for the people who aren't religious. He's in it for the people that do not have it all together. He's in it for people that are completely messed up. People like you, people like me. And I'm not, that's not, that's not a diss. I'm not trying to diss anybody. I'm just saying I know a lot of you. And we, <laughs> we really need Jesus. So big idea today, and maybe you've never heard this in church, big idea today, get around sinners. You, Christians, get around sinners. Spend time around sinners so that sinners can get around Jesus. You are the Jesus in their lives. Spend time around them. Love them. Call them out of their sin. But for goodness sake, spend time around sinners. The first thing we see in today's scripture is that Jesus invites the shady to follow him. We see this in Mark 2, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus calls Levi, also known as Matthew, says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. What is Jesus doing? He is continuing to teach. He's gone from the hometown, smaller venue to the arena rocking network. He goes from Peter's house to this large open area, and he is continuing to do what he was called to do, what he was placed here to do, and that is to teach. And not just to teach open air and, call, and, and share all these insights that he has, preaching on the kingdom publicly, but also to continue to do so in discipling people. So he is calling people to follow him, and he is teaching them not only publicly, but in private as well. Then what we see Jesus do is something that we should also be doing in our lives, and Jesus puts himself in position. A theme that we're going to have all throughout today's message that we're going to see over and over within these just few verses is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, then that meant that Jesus had to actually be around lost people. Jesus came to disciple the lost. That means that he had to actually put himself in place to call these people to follow him. If he was going to call these people to follow him, then that meant that he had to actually plan it out. So with this one guy named Levi, who we know as Matthew, who would write the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has to figure out, how do I get around him? Well, he's a tax collector. That means I know he's going to be at these places at these times. So if I'm going to invite him to follow me, I need to not only observe his natural rhythms of life, but I need to insert myself into this guy's natural rhythms of life. Jesus inserts himself into Matthew's life. He calls Matthew to follow him. So what my question to you is, what my question to us as a church is, is are you positioning yourself for the eternal purpose of other people? Whose life are you inserting yourself in so that you can call them to follow Jesus? Now, to do this, we have to stop focusing on ourselves. To do this, we have to take the phone out from in front of our faces. To do this, we have to actually look out at other people, observe their lives, actually ask them, hey, what's going on in your life? And not just so that they think that you're a nice person, but actually listen to the words that they say. Actually take time to pray for the situations that they're in. Actually take time to pray, God, give me a time. Give me a place where I can be there for this person in love and truth, and I can introduce them to you. We've got to insert ourselves in the lives of sinners, in the lives of people that do not yet know Jesus. So are you purposefully putting yourself in the lives of lost people? I know for myself that can be particularly hard. I don't know if you know, but I'm a pastor, and people get really weird around pastors. <clears throat> I think they get really weird around me because they're like, I'm not sure you know what a pastor is. I, you keep saying that word. I don't think you know what that word means. You don't seem like a pastor. But I get around people. I tell them I'm a pastor. Their posture gets better. They start using spiritual words in the wrong ways. Um, it's really awkward. But for me, and for you as well, we all have two places in our lives. We have our home life. This is our personal lives with our families, those that we love, those that we, it's our first ministry, our spouses, our kids, the people that we spend all of our time around. And then we have our second place. And for us as believers, that second place is church. And so for me, I spend a lot of time in place number one, in my home, loving, taking care of, discipling my family. I spend a lot of time in place number two, which we don't have a church building, so I spend a lot of time in my home, which is uh, right next to place number one. And then we come here on Sundays, and we make it look like it's church-ish. There's a lot of time in my life where I spend around Christians. So that means that I have to then find a third place where I'm not spending time with Christians. I would say if you are only surrounded by Christians, you need to also find a third place where you are not surrounded by Christians. You need some sinful people in your life. One, to show you where you've come from. Two, because you probably just need to have a little more fun. So what I have started doing is coaching first and second grade girls soccer. You want to know who the sinful uh, families are in the neighborhood? You coach their kids. And then you have a game, and then you just kind of listen and see what's being said on the sideline about whatever bad call that the ref just made, and it's his second game ever refing. I've put myself in this position 
to love these first and second grade girls and their families, to serve them, to build relationships with them. That is a natural place for us to gather. It is a natural rhythm of life for kids the same age as my kids. I'm in the same stage of life as these other people who don't know Jesus, and I get to use the church down the street to meet sinners, to tell them about Jesus, and they're like, hey, invite them to your church. They've been really cool about that. So I've had to find a third place. What is your third place? Where are you going to get around non-believing people? People that haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. Are you around sinners? Or are you comfortably insulating yourself with other Christians? That's not, that's not, that's not the plan that Jesus had. Jesus never wanted us to gather together to be a holy huddle, to get together, sing Christian karaoke, watch some guy talk for a little bit, Christian karaoke again, take a really weird taste and snack, and to walk out of here, and we just feel good about ourselves. We're supposed to put his word into work. We're supposed to look at his life, and we're supposed to be living examples of Jesus to lost people all around us. That means we get around lost people. Maintain the balance. If you're spending all your time with Christians, this becomes a country club. If you're spending all your time around sinners, they're going to influence you and probably draw you further away from Jesus. If you're spending your time in the Word, spending your time talking to Jesus, and then you go out to your Christians and you equip them and you encourage them, they do the same for you, you will be ready to go out to the lost and share the gospel with them after you have loved them and invested in them relationally. The next thing we see Jesus do is absolutely scandalous. He calls Levi to follow him. Now, Levi is a tax collector. What is a tax collector? A tax collector is a thief and a traitor, especially to his people. You see, Rome was the um, oppressing uh, military power. Rome was in control. And so what Matthew did as uh, a tax collector is he turned his back on his people, and he said, no, my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, yeah, this is actually our land, but now Rome has actually taken it from us. Um, yeah, I, f I feel terrible about that, but I'm going to go work for them now. And as I work for them, I'm going to be a traitor to you, but as I work for them, I'm actually going to skim a little bit off the top of everything that I steal from you to give to Rome. Anybody in here like taxes? <laughs> Amen. My kind of people. I don't like them either. So Matthew is saying, hey, uh, taxes are, uh, they're, they're actually $8. Rome needs $8 from you. Rome actually only asked for $6. So Matthew is taking two off the top and he is padding his pockets. Tax collectors were the dogs of society. Thieves and traitors to their own people, just kissing up to Rome the whole time. Their houses were nice, their lifestyles were lavish, but they were often lonely. But what do we see here? We see that Jesus invites a tax collector, the lowest in society, to follow him. What does that mean for the sinner? What does that mean for the person who isn't perfect? What does that mean for the person who is outcast, who is undesirable, who is self-marginalized away from everyone else, the person who is sinful? This is really good news for us. This means that there's a spot, there's a place next to Jesus. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect you can actually have worked your whole life to go the opposite direction, and everybody around you can't stand being around you. But what does Jesus say? He comes to you. 
he finds you. And he gets on your level and he says, I know, I know how messed up you are. Follow me. And this is where we see everything change for Matthew or for Levi. It is at Jesus' side that everything changes. You see, Matthew's name, it actually means gift of God. But on his own, in his own strength and in his flesh, just looking out for himself, Matthew's name only meant thief from God. Thief from God's people. But in Jesus, Matthew now can live up to his full potential and only in Jesus. Matthew goes from extortionist to evangelist. Matthew goes from taker of resources to giver of a gospel. That's right. That's the same Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first gospel in the New Testament. That is this broken, messed up, selfish man right here. What's the difference in between this guy and that guy? Jesus and Jesus alone. And how Jesus has transformed his life. Matthew goes from betrayer of his people to loyal disciple of his Savior. But how does all of this happen? This all happens because Jesus says, follow me. And as soon as Jesus says, follow me, Matthew has to do two things. The first thing is he has to take everything into account. This guy's a money guy. You can bet that he was taking everything into account. He was counting every single cost. Jesus has called me to follow him. That means that I have to leave my fancy house. That means that I have to leave my good paying job, even if it isn't necessarily above reproach. This means that I have to live my, leave my comfortable life and life as I know it. And then Matthew has to make a decision. Take the risk, follow Jesus, trade his old dead life for a new true life in Jesus and take the red pill and see how deep this rabbit hole goes, as Morpheus would say in The Matrix. Very biblical movie, by the way. Many of us, many of us have received this exact same call. Jesus says, follow me. And for so many of you, you've counted the cost. You said, I have my career, I have my comfort, I have my expectations. But Jesus, I'm willing and ready to leave all of that behind. Because I know who you are. And I know that you are calling me to follow you. And I am ready to leave all of that behind if I can actually gain true life in you. You gave your life for me. It's the least that I can do to follow you. But there's probably others of us in here who are still on the fence. There's probably others of us who have said, actually, Jesus, I'm not giving you my full no. But I'm going to give you a little bit of apathy, which is probably worse than a full no. I'm going to say, Jesus, not yet. Jesus, I'm just not good enough. And Jesus, once I can just have enough good deeds and, and hopefully be good enough to stand before you, then maybe then I'll be worthy of following you. Jesus, maybe then I'll be good enough for salvation. For others of us, Jesus, I'll follow you and my life slows down. Jesus, I don't know if you know, but if you look at my Google Calendar, I, I literally don't have any time except Friday between 9.15 and 9.16 to follow you right now. Do you see all those different colors? That's 16 different calendars. I just don't have time for you right now, Jesus. Instead of following Jesus 
and Jesus taking every single one of those appointments and actually putting purpose behind them and using you in all of those different places, we prioritize our schedule and our busyness over what life is actually all about, and that's following our Savior. Others of us, it might just be, Jesus, I'll follow you when I have the answers. I don't have all of this figured out. I think to that, Jesus would say, you never will. And as a pastor, I want you to know the more I study the Bible, the more questions I have. But I know that one of the biggest parts of all of this is faith. I'm never going to have all the answers. By the way, that doesn't mean you can't ask me all the questions. I'll just tell you I don't know, and then I'll go research really hard. But don't wait until you have the knowledge, because you'll never have enough knowledge. There's got to be a point where you have faith and you leap, and you are saved by grace through faith. So count the cost. Is it worth it to gain the world and lose your soul and make the decision? Follow Jesus, never turn back, and see how this life turns out, and follow him into eternity. You've got a choice to make. Second point this morning, good news for us as well. Jesus socializes with sinners as their friend. Jesus socializes with sinners as their friend. Mark 2.15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So what does Matthew do as soon as he gets asked by Jesus or gets told by Jesus, hey, follow me, and he accepts Jesus' invitation and he follows him, he throws a house party. And what we know of house parties so far is that there have been a lot of them in this gospel so far. We see that Peter has a house party at his house last Sunday. Uh, It's so crazy that there's not enough room to get a paralytic to Jesus, so they had to send him through the roof. Matthew's house, much bigger than Peter's house. How is that? Because Peter's money helped pay for Matthew's house. That's how taxes work, okay? So, Levi throws a house party. Why is that? It's because new life, new life following Jesus should always, 100% of the time, be celebrated. That is why we celebrate salvations in this church. That is why we celebrate baptisms in this church. People going from their old dead selves into new life in Jesus is worth throwing a party for. But the main reason that Matthew is holding a house party is to honor Jesus. And Matthew knows that if Jesus can offer this to me and then ask me to follow him. I've got a lot of other friends that are really messed up just like me, and maybe they can follow Jesus too. And maybe they can experience his love. Maybe they can hear his message of the kingdom and the need to repent and to follow him. And so he throws a party. Jesus is invited. All of his friends are invited. And what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is eating with sinners. Now, who are these sinners. These sinners are a group of outcasts. They're liars. They're criminals. They're thieves. They're thugs. They're prostitutes. But they're also just people that have been placed to the edge of society. They're also people that just don't follow God's law, especially the kind of people that don't follow God's law, like the religious people are saying that they should. And so I think when we see Jesus is eating dinner with sinners, we kind of think, Okay, this is a shady lot of people, and I think we probably go straight to like Nicolas Cage's Con Air, if you remember that movie. 
Jesus is on the plane with Nick Cage and all the bad guys. But I think it's probably a mix of Con Air and The Breakfast Club, okay? There is a spectrum that is taking place. The super bad and also just the spend a lot of time in detention kind of kids. So the question now is, why is Jesus eating with sinners such a big deal? For the Pharisees, for the Pharisees, it was such a big deal because there were laws written around this whole thing. Before a meal, a Jewish person, especially a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders in that day, would have had to wash their hands and their utensils in a very specific way. Before dinner, the table was ever even set. The food had to be grown. It had to be tithed. That's right. I said their food had to be tithed. I think giving is tight right now. What if we had to tithe our food? The whole church would just be like, I don't know, Jesus. I can't really do that. 10%, 10% of every meal? That's, a, that's, that's my calories, Jesus. Every single meal had to be grown a certain way, had to be tithed before eating, had to be prepped a specific way, all to keep you further away from breaking God's law. There's basically two fences. There is death, there's God's law keeping you from that, and then there is man's law. We will get into that in just a little bit, but they wanted to stay as far away as they could. But eating with these sinners, eating with these kinds of people were the, was the kind of thing that you did not do because if you ate with these people and they didn't observe those laws, then that put you very close to breaking those laws yourself. What we see in Jesus that's absolutely beautiful makes him a little bit of a renegade and an outlaw himself as he says, I have not a care for the laws of men, but I will always, to the T and the dot of the I, follow the laws of my Father. We see Jesus as the perfect sacrifice on the cross. It's because he fulfilled the law. He never broke a single one, and he fulfilled the prophecy about himself. Beautiful thing. This is the exact kind of situation that the Pharisees would have isolated themselves from, saying, I will never spend time around these sinful people because if I do, then I could fall into sin. This is the exact kind of situation that Jesus says, you know what, there's some sinful people around there. I'm not going to isolate myself away from them. I'm going to dive right into the middle of their mess, where the Pharisees saw in Jesus a friend of sinners. The Pharisees also saw an enemy of God. Culturally, we see that this was intimate. We see that Jesus is reclining at the table with them. Think of uh, tables as if Lazy Boy made them, okay? I'm talking about a place to eat in the middle and then a place to recline onto that table all the way around it. Meals lasted for hours, and so the food was in the middle. You're having a conversation with somebody. Hey, what's going on? Isn't this a great meal? Aren't these nice grapes? Is this making you uncomfortable right now? Just imagine these sinners. Imagine these sinners as Jesus is conversing with them. This was something that didn't happen, especially for a rabbi. And what this did was this showed that Jesus wanted to love. I love this scripture too. I want to read it again. Jesus loved these sinful people to the point of reclining at table to them, clearing his schedule, and having an intimate conversation with them. When was the last time you had a real, genuine conversation with somebody? It wasn't, hey, how's it going? How's the wife? How's the kids? All right, I'll see you later. Hey, hope everything's going good. 
I'll see you next time. Jesus inserts himself into their lives, and he begins a relationship. This is a big deal for the sinners because this was out of the ordinary. These people were absolutely amazed at the opportunity to sit down at table with a rabbi. That's not something that happened very often. And as we pan out of all of this and we look at the big picture, we see that this is just a small glimpse, a taste of what was to come when we read Revelations 19.9 where Jesus is at the great feast and he is eating with all the people who knew that they were sinners in need of a savior. This is a foreshadowing of what was to come and still panned out in Jesus's ministry. This was a mission statement. Again, Luke 19, 10, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I've said a lot of, we need to spend time around sinners. Jesus spent time around sinners. Jesus was intimate very close in his relationships with sinners and that he was at table having a relationship with them, conversing with them. What Jesus never once did and what you should never do as you spend time around sinners and as they have the potential to influence you, Jesus never once endorses their sin. Jesus knows that he is going to die for their sin. And this is the messy part of spending time with broken people, is that especially in today's culture where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, well, that's not the truth of the Bible. We need to point people to God's truth. That means there's a way to do things. That means there's a way not to do things. That means that there are things we, are, uh, it, we have permission to do. They are permissible, but that means that there are also things that we should stay away from. If we know the truth, we have the light, and that means we need to guide the way. We don't need others to lead us astray. We don't need to say, it's okay, you go on living life in your sin, because that's not love. That's patting them on the back all the way to hell. We need to give them the truth, but we need to give them love as well. And I think that is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus in the Gospels over and over again, is that perfect seesaw balance of truth and love. You give people all truth, they're never going to want to be around you. That's too harsh. You give them all love, that's way too much sugar, cotton candy, junk food diet. You're going to love them to hell. There is a balance. Give them that balance. So, what is the table in your life? Another way to ask that question is, who's coming to dinner? Who are the sinful people in your life that you need to engage that you know need Jesus. At that point, the question becomes, who will you recline at table with? Who will you invest in relationally? Introverts all over this room, freaking out right now. I have to talk to people? Yeah, you can text them. But when they, you know, person to person, I would put the phone down and have a conversation. Extroverts everywhere. Oh, that's easy. It's easy until you run out of things to talk about. It's easy until their sin starts to affect your life. It's easy until your hands get messy. But that is exactly what our Savior does over and over and over again. Who is it in your life that knows they need a Savior? Not the self-righteous person that thinks they've got it all together, but who is it in your life that knows they are absolutely messed up? Invite them to table. 
whatever that table is, wherever that table is, invest in them relationally, love them, and give them truth. Final point this morning. Jesus heals the spiritually sick as their physician. And once again, this is great news for all of us. Mark 2, verses 16 through 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So who are these Pharisees? These Pharisees are the middle to upper middle class Jewish religious leadership of that time. There's about 6,000 of them right around this time. These are people that are fully devoted to God's law, and that is commendable because we see that Jesus is fully devoted to God's law and upholds it perfectly. The problem steps in that they are also completely devoted to the oral law, to the traditions of men. Because they are devoted to God's law and man's law, they are then elevating man's law to say that this is equal to God's law because it's going to help keep us away from breaking God's law. And that makes them the epitome of legalistic and self-righteous people. I think to better understand this, i got to tell you a little story about the tale of two fences. There was a farmer, let's just say he was living in Wyoming, and he found this amazing piece of land. He bought this land, and after he bought it, he realized that there was a massive pit in the middle of this land. So he knew that he wanted people to experience this beautiful land that he had just bought, and so to keep them safe so that it wouldn't just be walking along the road, living their life, falling into this massive pit, what he did was he built a fence around this pit. Well, people started coming over. They started getting close to that fence and then backing away, but there was a certain point where the state came in and they said, hey, you know what? That fence that you have around your pit on your property, that's actually not enough safety to keep people from falling into the pit. So what we actually need to do is put a fence around your entire property. And maybe we just need to start charging people to come visit your beautiful land. That's exactly what happens here with the Pharisees. In this tale of two fences, they have taken death, which you end up in if you break God's law, and God has designed his law to keep his people holy and righteous and away from death and falling to the wayside. Daniel, help me out with these pictures here. We have death, and so what God does is he designs a law, and he gives it to Moses, and that law protects people from getting close to death. That's going to be that orange slide. Boom, God's law. Those graphics are incredible, aren't they? Really impressive stuff here. Well, what the Pharisees do is they take the oral law, passed down and passed down and passed down, generation to generation, and they say, we don't want to get anywhere near God's law, and so what we've done is we've created man's law. And that is where the issue comes in. And Jesus says, I recognize God's law, and I will follow that. But what you have elevated to the same place of God's law, I will absolutely never follow. So all of the issues that these Pharisees are taking with Jesus is not in that he's breaking God's law, because he never does. He is breaking man's law. Probably the best way I could put it, so that you would understand it, so that I could understand it, is uh, my family 
we were on the way back from Sedona yesterday. We're driving back. I get behind a Dodge Charger. I'm thinking, man, I'm set from Sedona to my house. I'm going to make it back in less than two hours. So we're going through the back way through Cottonwood. I guess I-17 was messed up just like it always is. Uh, I don't know why that thing is still two lanes, but it probably will be forever. We're on the way back. There's a thousand roundabouts if you're going through Cottonwood on the way back home from Sedona. I'm behind a Dodge Charger. I'm thinking, this guy's going to drive fast, okay? We're at least going 10 over the speed limit. This dude never got more than three above the speed limit. Uh, We were not getting a ticket yesterday, okay? (laughs) But the worst thing that he did was anytime we would go to a roundabout, I'm pretty perceptive. I'm looking around. I don't see 18-wheelers. I don't see other cars. Every time we'd get to a roundabout, there was this red sign. It's white in the middle. It's a triangle upside down. And in the middle of it, in red writing, it says yield. Well, in him following man's law so that we didn't get anywhere close to God's law, I think in his mind, that sign said stop. And I just want to say that if you stop at a yield sign and there's no oncoming traffic, we will have a special time of prayer after service today, and we will pray for you. He was following man's law so that he would never even get close to breaking God's law in this illustration. In real life, he was just a bad driver. Please, if there's not oncoming traffic, just keep going. Yield, yield is not, that's not, you have to stop. It's optional. Unless there's cars coming, then please stop. So that is the Pharisees. We fall back into the story now, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not even on the guest list for this party that Jesus finds himself at. The Pharisees and the scribes are outside of the house spying on Jesus and his disciples, and what do they see? They see an intimate relationship taking place between the Savior, Jesus, who they would not say is a Savior, and sinners. They see life on life. They see we are on the same level type of activity taking place. And then they see his disciples, and they are nearby. Remember, Pharisees outside the house looking in. Some of Jesus' followers outside the house. You ever, uh, you ever walk up on somebody, and maybe you were talking about them, and then they come around the corner? Or maybe you're like, you're about to, uh, you, you just said their names, and you probably said, you know, we all go to church here, so you probably said something like, I love that person, but and then you say it, and then they pop out from behind the corner, and it's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, but at least I said I loved them. (laughs) Thank goodness I said that. What's the look on your face? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, poo-poo. I should not have said those words about this person. I should have gone to them with these words. That is exactly the same situation these Pharisees find themselves in because they ask this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus pops out from the, behind the corner, peekaboo, let me give you an answer. And in verse 17, we get his answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now Jesus knew something that these Pharisees had fooled themselves on. He knew that they were just as sick, they were just as terminally ill with sin and in need of a doctor as the tax collectors and the sinners inside of this home. What was the difference between them? These guys couldn't see their own sin. So when we pan out, when we take every gospel account of what Jesus responds with here, we get a little bit fuller 
picture. We see in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, that Jesus says that he, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And right after that, it says Jesus said he calls them to repentance. So in that, we see that perfect balance of truth and love. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 13, we see that Jesus says something just a little bit extra right before this, but this puts all the hot goss and the drama on the whole thing. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. Now that is a rabbinic term. That is a term that a rabbi would use when he is correcting foolishness. All right, I'm coaching first and second grade girls soccer right now. I had a girl tell me no this week, took the ball from me, put it on the ground, and told me she was going to handle the situation. <laughs> Woo! I almost got fired, okay? I took the ball off the ground. I said, I'm the coach. Go stand over there. That's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees right now. He's saying, listen up, class. Class is in session. And then he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now, when Jesus says that, he is taking them back mentally to Hosea 6, 6. And Jesus is saying, God is more concerned with a merciful heart and not a hard, hypocritical heart that has it all together. And that is what you guys are acting like right now. In a moment, Jesus points out their hypocrisy. What Jesus is saying is those who think they have it all together, I have nothing to say to. But those that know they are sinners, that know that they need saving, those are the people that I have come to heal and to draw near. Now again, these sinners knew that they were sinful. They knew that they were in need of a Savior. They knew that they were sick and they needed a doctor. For you and for me, we have to realize that exact same thing so that we don't end up like the self-righteous Pharisees. We can't be a Sante church, that church in our community that thinks they have it all together. Because as soon as we do, we lose our witness to the people around us. Remember that you are sinful people. But remember that by grace, through faith, you have been saved. Don't forget it. Don't think you got it all together. Don't think you're not messed up anymore. Keep singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I will continue to be a wretch, but I will continue to be a wretch that has been saved by Jesus. I will continue to be a wretch who Jesus took my unrighteousness and he died on a cross with it. And in turn, he gave me his righteousness, which I never deserved. That's a scandal. That is the scandal of grace in which Jesus gives these broken people around this table and he sets these Pharisees straight on. We've got to realize we're lost before we can be found. We've got to realize that we are spiritually sick before we can be spiritually healed and we've got to realize that we are spiritually dead before Jesus can make us spiritually alive. So realize that today. Where do you stand? Are you self-righteous? You're going to earn your salvation on your own. You can keep going down that path, but I think you're going to be really disappointed when life is up. Or are you going to realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you're not perfect, that you've lied, that you've stolen, that you've cheated, lusted, committed adultery? You go down the list. You need forgiveness. Will you put your trust in Jesus and his work on the cross to save you from that sin and to put you in right relationship with the Father? that we can be a church of sinners 
saved by grace, saved by Jesus, that makes an impact on the community that God has called us to make an impact on by reaching sinners that are in need of a Savior that need to be saved by grace. It will happen no other way. Let's be the church. Let's display the kingdom. Let's find our sinners. Let's give them a place at our table. Let's invest in them with love and truth. And let's introduce them to our Savior, to our King Jesus. Let's pray.